Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I've got a trivia question for you. All right, hit me. This is for all of you out there listening as well. When Marie Curie died, was she older or younger than 27 years old? Think about your answer. Older or younger than 27? Okay, well, I have to say she was definitely older, but I have to admit that I, I read an excellent glow-in-the-dark book uh, about her uh, a few years back titled mm. Radioactive, Marie and Pierre Curie, A Tale of Love and Fallout, uh, which, by the way, heading into Valentine's Day, it's an excellent Valentine's Day uh, book to give somebody. Wait, hold on. So this is going to be about them, but it's glow-in-the-dark signaling yeah. that the book is radioactive and will poison you and your fingers will fall off? And Well, when you put it like that, it doesn't sound very romantic, but it's, it's, a, it's a very romantic book. Uh, but well, I, know, I know from having read that that she, she lived significantly longer than, uh, than her 20s. Well, okay. So most people probably do know that. But here, here's another chance. Just guess what age she died. How old was Marie Curie when she died? Okay. And just this, think about it for This a becomes a little harder for me because I have – I can clearly picture uh, a photograph of her. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say 64? Very close. Marie Curie died in 1934 at the age of 66. Oh, OK. So, yeah, very close. Now, you listening at home. How close were you? Did you overshoot? I assume not many people undershot the age. If you did, that's okay. No shame in it. Uh, I tried this on somebody yesterday and she guessed 44. I did the same thing. I said, older, younger than 27. What's the age? And when, uh, when I told her the answer that it was actually 66, the person I was talking to said, Oh, well, I've seen pictures of her that looked older than that, but I guess I assumed it was from all the radiation. Ah, okay. <laughs> I see where you're going with this, though. The, um, the 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 question you ask by putting 27 in there, you're 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 sort of lowering their expectations. It could be, yeah. Maybe something was going on there. I've got another one for you. Okay. When Sean Connery took a role in the film Highlander Two: The Quickening, 1991, mm -hmm. one of his finest choices. Yes. Mm -hmm. The planet Zeist. When he took that role, what was his salary for the role? Was it more or less than 31 million dollars? 
Ooh, okay. This one's tough for me because it, it, I love movie trivia, but I'm not very good with the economic movie trivia. Uh-huh. So I don't even have a very good starting point. It it seems to me, though, that sounds like an awful lot of money, mm-hmm. um, especially for Highlander 2. In 1991. Yeah, like that's that's some that's some big uh, that's that's some Tom Cruise money right there. I would guess. So you're saying lower? Maybe, but then this was I mean, you have to put yourself in a pre Highlander two era. So <laughs> Highlander two, I can't imagine it. <laughs> unable to process, cannot compute. It's well, it's true. I don't think I watched Highlander. I got excited to watch Highlander one after I saw trailers for Highlander two. Uh-huh. Uh, I believe that's how that went down. Uh, but yeah, not not knowing what we know now about the the uh, the, the public reception uh, to, to Highlander two, one could easily say, yeah, it was everyone was just totally optimistic. It was a follow up to Highlander, which was arguably you know one of the greatest films of its generation. <laughs> okay, so guess, take a guess. Okay. What was his actual salary? All right, you're asking about thirty five. A 31. 31. Uh, I'm going to half that and say 15 million. Is that a lot for Sean Connery? Oh, you're way over the mark. Way, oh. way over. Well, now, I do have to admit that my answer comes from a sketchy looking website, which okay. is the only place I could find an answer uh, called like the movie time. So maybe this is wrong. But the answer I could find said he was paid 3.5 million. OK, well, yeah, I was way over the line then. Yeah. But worth every penny, really, and then some. Exactly right. But notice how far off the mark you were given those starting questions I asked. Was she older or younger than 27 or was it more or less than 31 million? And I wonder to what extent those questions changed the kind of answer you gave to your ultimate guess on her age at death or on the the movie salary. What would you have said if you hadn't received those questions to start with? Well, in the case of the Highlander question, I was just kind of trying to reverse engineer an answer. I think I would have I was still would have missed the mark, but I think I would have probably said something like five or six million. Mm -hmm. A lot closer, a lot closer, certainly less of an exaggeration. Uh, but the but by but, but mentioning oh, but you were pretty much on the money on Marie Curie, right? Sorry. Yeah, but I but that was an area where I I have read about her and uh-huh. I think I did a podcast that that talked about her a while back. So I had some sort of I had some level of of expert information there, but I had nothing really to go on for the Highlander two one. Okay, so this effect that we've just been demonstrating is what we're going to be talking about today. And this is a psychological effect. It's been written about a lot in the field of behavioral economics, uh, but it's fundamentally a psychological phenomenon known as the anchoring bias. And I I would argue it's one of the most powerful, most well-known, and most easily exploited vulnerabilities in our minds. And for that reason, I think it's something that really everybody should know about because it's something that people will constantly be using to try to get the upper hand on you for the rest of your life. Indeed, this is definitely a topic that will change the way you think about uh, everything from salary negotiations to just uh, haggling at the market. Totally, yeah. Uh, And not just economic matters, too. I want to, uh, though, though it's mostly been tested in terms of estimating numbers and and especially economic type numbers, prices, things where you're trying to determine a reasonable figure for something. Mm-hmm. I would posit that I think it's very likely this type of thinking also biases all kinds of judgments we make, such as judgments of people's reputations, judgments of the confidence we place in the outcomes of events, all of which is going to be enormously important for the rest of your life in myriad ways. Yeah, though, though certainly a lot of the more uh, like readily available examples are going to involve economics. They're going to involve things like massive discounts. How can you do? You remember deep discount DVDs? Deep discount DVDs, or I guess it was deep discount DVD. I think it was a website uh-huh. that had its time in the sun there with with deeply discounted DVDs. And <laughs> it seems like everybody I knew, we were we were just like, oh my goodness, these deals are too good. You're practically you're losing money if you don't order these movies. Right. The more you buy, the more you save. Yeah. And it's easy <laughs> to fall into that mentality. It's like I didn't really want to pick up this video game or this movie or this book, but when you slice the price that much, I guess I'll bite. Yeah, man. Seems irrational, right? 
But back to the questions I asked earlier. What what age did Marie Curie die? How much was Sean Connery paid for Highlander 2? I actually did a brief non-scientific email survey. I say non-scientific because these were very small samples, not truly random. I just basically randomly emailed coworkers uh, in two different groups and asked them to estimate answers to those questions. Now, I had group A where I just asked them, how old did you think Marie Curie was when she died? And how much do you think Sean Connery got paid for Highlander 2? No anchors, right? Mm -hmm. No, No starting numbers higher or lower than. And in that group, the uh, average answer that people gave was that they thought that Marie Curie died at 53, and they thought that Sean Connery got paid 3.2 million. 3.2, that was their, that was their answer without any anchoring. Right, without any anchoring. So that's very close. Very close to the 3.5, if that website's correct, who knows. Then group B, I did the same anchors I just gave you. So I asked them, did she die older or younger than 27? What age did she die? The average answer for that group was 48.3. Good bit lower lower than group A. Yeah. And then also I did the same thing. I said, uh, uh, higher or lower than 31 million for Sean Connery. Average guess in group B was that Sean Connery got paid $19.3 million. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm glad I wasn't alone in being like so off the mark. For Highlander 2, $19.3 million. And these are, these are our coworkers. These are smart people. Yeah. You know, they should be good at making estimates of these kind of things off the top of their head. But in this non-scientific way, I feel like we've just demonstrated that just putting a number out there, even if the number is totally unreasonable, and Marie Curie didn't die at 27, what? Mm-hmm. Sean Connery did not get 31 million for this movie in 1991. No, that doesn't make any sense. But even if you put these unreasonable numbers out there, they seem to bias people's answers toward the numbers you've thrown out. Well, it really takes me back to like pop quizzes and grade school tests, right? And yeah. the saying, the, the the famous adage, the answer is in the question. Mm-hmm. Because what do you do if you don't really know the answer? Well, you, if it's multiple choice, you look at the available answers, answers and see which one reaches out to you the most, which one feels true or stirs your memory. And then failing that, you look to the, the, the question itself. Is there some sort of information in the question uh Essentially, you're looking mm-hmm. for uh, like a leak in the question. You're looking for a flaw in the in in the Riddler's uh, uh, strategy. Yeah, there's test taking skills, mm-hmm. which are essentially meta test taking skills. They are skills that are not really about the subject of the test, but skills at determining how to interrogate the style and format of a test to exploit it for better scores in the end. Right. But then I also think there's there's also kind of a social connotation to this as well. Like an an example would be you have a a friend who comes up and says, hey, man, have you heard this latest album by, I don't know, name an active band. Kansas. Kansas. Have you heard this new album by Kansas? How awesome is that album, man? So now I I have to frame my answer around awesome. Is it Pretty awesome. Super awesome. It was okay. Reasonably awesome. When you say it was okay, what that means is you hated it. <laughs> but you have to adjust up to the fact that they started with how awesome is it. You're right. And this is a case, though, where it's it's not a situation where you're going to appear stupid or uh, or uninformed on a topic unless, you know, except on the topic of Kansas, maybe. Uh, it's not a situation where you have any monetary stakes, but there is kind of like a social stake in play there. If your friend is a huge Kansas fan, you don't want to say, oh, I think Kansas is awful. Mm-hmm. You want to adjust your answer so that it's the appropriate balance of of, of truth and uh, and politeness. Yeah. Uh, so in the same way that my email survey was not really scientific, what we're talking about, these examples are not really scientific either. They're just right. anecdotes and they've got all these contaminating factors like you're saying. Like Kansas. Well, <laughs> like social social dynamics like you were just explaining. So your response might not be truly influenced by just the presence of the word awesome as much as it is by the fact that you're trying to maintain a relationship with the person who said this. Right. You know what I mean? So it's not divorced of this contaminating context. 
Now, the anchoring effect that we're going to be talking about today has been thoroughly demonstrated in fully scientific context. So it's not always just this social kind of stuff going on. Uh, You can test it 10 ways to Sunday, and it has been tested not just 10, a million ways to Sunday. And this thing works. Mm -hmm. This anchoring effect is a known robust exploit of the human mind that works almost all the time. It is it is scary how often it works. Yeah, there are no shortage of papers about this. Uh, that's for sure. Now, I guess we should try to define it just a little bit more. So to, to define the anchoring effect, it is an example of what's known as a cognitive heuristic. And if you're like me, I can remember, I think back when I was in college, I went a long time hearing the word heuristic and just sort of nodding without really knowing what it meant. Anytime you hear the word heuristic, you can just substitute the phrase rule of thumb or mental shortcut. I still picture a hair shirt, uh, no matter what. I mean, I, I know that it does not <laughs> what, mean hair because it sounds like that? Yeah, because it just kind of yeah. – you ever have words like that where it's completely illogical? Yeah. But you can't help but, but picture this thing in your head. I have no idea why. Like I tend to imagine a, a philosopher in a hair shirt. Melisandre put on her rough spun heuristic. <laughs> yes, pretty much. But in reality, a heuristic is a rule of thumb or a mental shortcut. It's essentially a fast and easy process that your brain uses to come up with some kind of output. You need a piece of information or a judgment about something, and you don't really have time to sit down and work out all the details. So instead, you use a heuristic. And heuristics can lead to relatively good output. Sometimes you're good at a fast and loose judgment on the fly, or they can lead to relatively bad output. And there are all kinds of heuristics we use. One example of an extremely common and extremely bad heuristic is judging what you think of somebody by how they look. Yes. Extremely common heuristic. It's a shortcut. You don't want to do the work of like talking to them for hours and figuring out, you know, what you really think about them and their reliability as a person and their values and all that. So instead, you can just look at them and make a crude judgment. This is a great example because it's also a process that is not necessarily taking place at the the, the surface level of, of cognition. It's implicit as opposed to explicit. Yeah, it very often is. And so this is like one of these really bad heuristics that we're just plagued by. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's everybody should recognize it's a destructive way of thinking. It's not really good for society that people do it, but people just keep doing it because they're naturally vulnerable to it. It's like taking a shortcut through the woods. Yeah. It makes sense unless there's a monster there or it's rained or you get lost. Um I mean, really, that can be said about a lot of shortcuts. That's why we call them shortcuts. Yeah. They can help you, help you out in the short term. But if everybody does it, it breaks the system. Or if you do it too often, you're more likely to run up against the pitfalls mm-hmm. of taking that shortcut. Another bad heuristic, of course, is the anchoring heuristic, the one we're talking about today. Uh, it might not be bad in every single case because maybe in some off chance it will bias you toward a correct answer. But most of the time, the way the anchoring heuristic is going to be uh, deployed in your life is by people who are trying to get you – negotiated toward their position on something. Mm -hmm. And they will use the anchoring bias in order to exploit your mind and make you come closer to a position that benefits them. Right. So again, this is haggling for something at a marketplace. This is uh, negotiations over a, a contract or what have you. Exactly right. So I think we should take a quick break. And then when we come back, we will discuss the origins of the idea of anchoring and some research in psychology and behavioral economics on how it applies. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. 
A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, we're back. I should mention that one of our main resources in discussing the anchoring effect is a 2011 literature review from the Journal of Socioeconomics by Adrian Fernham and Hua Chu Bu, uh, which collects and synthesizes all of the major research on the subject over the past 40 years or so up until about 2011. This paper is a great resource. It puts it all in one place. And so that's going to be sort of our guide for discussing it as we go. One question is, where does the idea of anchoring come from? Obviously, people have been using it before it was understood and codified as a principle in behavioral economics, right? Right. But the anchoring and adjustment effect was most influentially described and articulated by Tversky and Kahneman in 1974. And according to them, it is, quote, the disproportionate influence on decision makers to make judgments that are biased toward an initially presented value. So what that means, in effect, is that when we're trying to make a reasonable guess or a judgment about something, any piece of information you get before you make the judgment is likely to bias your thinking in the direction of that piece of information. So if you're shown a car and asked how much you would pay for it, you you might say, what, uh, I don't know, $10,000? That seems about right. But let's say instead you are shown the same car with the price sticker on it that says $16,000. 
According to the anchoring and adjustment hypothesis here, you would be more likely in this scenario to offer more for the car, more than you would have if you just saw the car and tried to think how much would that be worth to me. Because now, now that it has a $16,000 price tag, I think maybe it looks worth about 12000 You're still coming down from the offer, but the offer has biased up your initial judgment of how much it's worth. Uh, or in other words, the anchor of the initial price has adjusted your offer higher than you'd naturally be willing to pay if that price hadn't been presented to you. It's kind of like if you have a, a, a ticket for a concert and then you realize you can't go. Mm-hmm. And so you try to sell that ticket. Right. Uh, just, you know, online to some friends, maybe you'll often include how much you paid for it. <laughs> right. And, and what you're really saying there is I paid 30 bucks for this ticket. So if, I'll take whatever I can get. But the closer you get to 30, the better. You're not. A, yeah. You're not asking how much is it worth for you to see Kansas? Mm-hmm. You're saying given that I paid five hundred dollars for front row seats to Kansas, how close can you get to that that number? I have no idea how much Kansas tickets actually cost. I assume they're mega in demand. But by simply mentioning five hundred dollars, you you made me think about it and think, well, you know, they're Kansas. I I know of Kansas, uh, so they're a big <laughs> enough name. Uh, it makes sense that someone would pay a lot of money for a first row uh, experience. You know, we're dust in the wind. We only live once. You might as well go see Kansas, even if it costs a pretty penny. Yeah, it's crazy. Like you say, just how, just through observation, you can tell how powerful. This, uh, this the anchoring uh, phenomenon actually is right, but we don't have to go anecdotal because this has been proved up, down, left, right, sideways to Wichita and back. Uh, it it is a thoroughly thoroughly demonstrated principle. Our minds just work this way, and it, so there are some qualifications. The anchoring bias can be affected by some variables, we think. And there is actually debate over what explains the the reason behind it, why it happens in different scenarios. But what there's really no debating is that it happens. This is this is proven a million ways and it is it is considered a thoroughly robust bias and a fundamental part of how the human brain works. Yes, as you say, said, there are no shortage of papers to back this up. I would say that one of the problems is that these are some of the st- Duffiest academic papers you could hope to read. Uh, I mean, they're they're breaking apart uh, a phenomenon that's best studied through numbers and, and figures and estimates on value. So it, it's not as sexy as you have somebody in a room pulling a lever to shock somebody in the next room. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like maybe maybe what anchoring needs is uh, is like one really good but kind of superficial study that's just based on say how much do you think Tom Cruise was paid for this film uh-huh. something that'll get, that'll generate headlines that'll be uh relatable in a slightly different way and that could help uh explain anchoring more to the the general public yeah it needs like a popular sensational demonstration but it's been demonstrated i mean part of the problem is you don't need to demonstrate it anymore it's been demonstrated so right, much yeah. with these like hundreds of questions it's been demonstrated on yeah it uh, falls what, more to science communication really. right uh, what is the freezing point of vodka? That's one that they ask people. Mm-hmm. Uh, makes a difference there. What is the height of Mount Everest? Uh, what age uh, was Amelia Earhart when she disappeared attempting to pilot a plane around the world? So there are just all these studies that ask questions like this and use anchoring to bias the answers of participants. But it also works in things other than just like giving a basic informational guess about something. That's what we've been doing so far. Like, you know, can you guess a fact about history? It also works in contexts like what uh, percent chance would you give of a thing happening? What's the percent chance you would give of a certain athlete scoring a certain number of points in an upcoming game? So it influences our judgments of probabilities. Yes, we certainly see this uh, in political elections, for instance. Absolutely. There'll be, yeah. there'll be numbers thrown out. What are the chances of this particular candidate winning? And then you end up uh, adjusting your expectations of the future based on those percentages. Yeah. And so those percentages – could be based on something in reality. I mean, like if you're looking at good, well-conducted poll data, that's reflecting information about reality that you might want to adjust according to that, right? Mm-hmm. If it's good information. But somebody could also bias you with bad information. 
uh, just by using the anchoring effect, if they just put a ridiculous number that's not true in front of your face, chances are that this will actually influence the extent to which it will influence your self-synthesized probability judgment. Yeah, like there's a – say there's a poll that comes out and says 80 percent of wizards think Voldemort will be a great ruler of the earth, uh-huh. you know? And then you're like, well – Ooh, I don't know, 80% is kind of high. It's probably more like 60, right? When, when really most wizards, maybe what, 20% of wizards think Voldemort's great? I don't know. I, I leave that to the, the, uh, the Potter fans. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the percent is, but yeah, you, you could be anchored and biased that way. Uh, so it affects these probability estimates. I know one thing they tested it on was like likelihood estimates of nuclear war. Mm. You can bias people's answers with anchors there. It has been shown to influence legal judgments like sentencing and uh, and liability for punitive damages. It's been shown to influence – this is the huge one uh, – valuations and prices, right? How much you'd be willing to pay for something. That's a really common example. Uh, it would be – it's been used in, in forecasting examples like how much you would expect to spend on a restaurant. And here's a really weird thing. The types of anchors that influence people don't have to seem credible. People can be influenced, these studies have shown, by things that obviously shouldn't be influences. They don't have to, like, frame this uh, this anchoring number that they prime you with as coming from some reasonable authority or something like that. They can just prime you with a random number. It doesn't matter at all. Some studies have people spinning a wheel to get a random number, and the random number still biases your answer toward it. Oh, wow. So just a random approval rating for Voldemort. I could say, even though it's super high, 99% approval rating among wizards of Voldemort. Apparently, you could spin a wheel in front of people so that it's entirely clear to them that the number is random and it's not coming from real data. And still showing that higher number from the random spin of the wheel would bias people's estimates toward the number. Wow. But we're getting ahead of ourselves because I think we should take a moment to talk about the different theories about what explains the anchoring effect. Obviously, this thing's there. If you put a number in front of somebody's face, it's going to bias their estimate or their answer toward that number. But why does this happen? Now, we mentioned the idea was uh, very popularly explained by Kahneman and Tversky in 1974. And their original proposal of adjustment uh, was was going up or down from a given anchor. And so their idea was you start with the anchor when you're trying to reason out the answer to something. So I say, you know, what was Sean Connery's salary in uh, in Highlander 2? Was it 31 million or, or above or below? The way people reason about that is they'd start with 31 million and they'd say, is that reasonable? And then most people would say, no, it can't be that much. So then they'd work their way down mm-hmm. from 31 million to a place that starts to feel reasonable. And so in that sense, you're sort of biasing yourself up toward like the the utter top range of whatever you might consider a reasonable range of answers. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, definitely. But this explanation does have problems. People have attacked it in the literature because – Anchoring, for one thing, is often shown to be unconscious. So if you're not doing this consciously, it's kind of hard to explain how that whole process could work itself out. Now, that's not to say that it's it's not ever conscious, because clearly if someone's going into negotiations over price, you might go into it saying, I paid $30 for this ticket. Yeah. If I could get 40 that would be great. So I'm going to start at 40 mm-hmm. knowing that they'll work me down closer to what I actually expect to get. Yeah, you're totally right. Sometimes it clearly is conscious. And, and in those conscious scenarios, I think Kahneman and Tversky's explanation might be right on the money. Mm-hmm. But uh, it also in some cases is clearly unconscious. And also it affects judgment whether or not the anchor is anywhere close to the realm of a reasonable range. So if I said um, – uh, Sean Connery's, uh, was, was Sean Connery's salary in Highlander 2, The Quickening, uh, $8 million? Or if I said, was it $10 billion? Either way, that kind of thing has been shown to influence, uh, to bias your answer toward it. So whether it's within a somewhat reasonable range or not. Yeah. I mean, if you throw it, throw out one of those, uh, those figures, I'm thinking it's either exceedingly high or it's, uh, it's pretty small for Sean Connery. 
Like if you if you'd if you'd asked me, did Sean Connery receive less or more than a hundred dollars for his role in uh, in Highlander Two? I that would make me begin to think. Well, maybe he was paid a, an exceedingly small amount of money, and yeah. it was there was some sort of special studio deal about it, or he just did it for the love of the franchise. Right. Yeah, he he just wanted to support Highlander. He said, "I'll t- just take fifty thousand. That's all I need." <laughs> uh, yeah, that would still bias you way down from the true answer. Now, a different hypothesis for explaining what causes the anchoring effect is uh, something that we're all very familiar with. It's often called the selective accessibility hypothesis, but really this is just explaining the anchoring effect through confirmatory hypothesis testing, a.k.a. confirmation bias. Oh, yes. This is a big one. This is like the bugbear of – scientific study or just critical thinking. Exactly. So in this uh, in this format, when you're trying to find the answer to a question, you mainly seek reasons to justify belief in the answer you already suspect. So if a detective is trying to solve a murder and he's got a gut feeling that Eugene did it, he's going to unconsciously give greater weight to any piece of evidence that makes Eugene look more guilty and unconsciously ignore or give less weight to evidence that points to somebody else or exonerates Eugene. So instead of openly and inductively just gathering evidence for all possibilities, he's subconsciously, without realizing it, trying to build a case for the suspect he already hypothesizes to be guilty. Uh, confirmation bias, another way of explaining it is that a lot of times when we think we're working like an investigator, we're really working like a prosecutor. Right. Uh, an example that's come up recently on the podcast is, uh, is that of, uh, of scientific studies into the effectiveness of prayer, mm-hmm. right? Because it's e- you can see how it's easy for an individual to go into this thinking that they uh, are being completely objective. Mm-hmm. But if they – if part of their worldview, even if it's not – even if they're not just like a hardcore 100 percent believer now, mm-hmm. if it's a part of their past, if it's a part of their history, uh, then that could be a stumbling block to like true objective uh, uh, exploration of prayer as having some sort of an influence on the real world. Yeah, but of course we we would we should say that this doesn't mean things like prayer studies are doomed. No. Because you can certainly design, I mean this is what science is for. This is why you design experiments. You try to make them so that your your biases don't matter. You structure an experiment to try to exclude the possibility of your bias interfering with the results. But I think the 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 other takeaway here is that there are there are two types of bad prayer researchers. Yeah, essentially, there's the the researcher who is just objectively uh, bad that is saying, "I believe prayer is real, and I'm going to bro- I'm going to bend uh, and break every rule to quote unquote prove it in the study." Yeah, and I think though that sort of researcher tends to not exist. Yeah, but then there's the second level, and that's the individual who. If you ask them about it, if you were able to peer into their mind, they believe they are doing the objective thing. They honestly think they're doing a good job probably. Yeah. Yeah. But they are still leaning into their bias. Yeah. They're prosecuting the truth rather than than investigating all open possibilities. Right. Uh, yeah. But then again, like I said, I don't want to automatically tar anybody who does a prayer study with that. But I, that clearly – is probably happening in some cases. Yeah, but the, the, the prosecution example is great too because it, it brings up the idea of leading questions. Yeah. And uh, the, the and anchoring seems to indicate that any question with a, with a figure in it, mm-hmm. with, with some sort of a, a number in it, is kind of a leading question. If I'm giving you a starting point uh, to, for you to determine the value. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that that is, you could say that leading questions are something similar to the anchoring effect. You're trying to give people a place to work from in the content of the question. Now, there's a third explanation for how the anchoring effect works, uh, apart from the uh, anchoring and adjustment theory of Kahneman and Tversky, and apart from the confirmation bias or selective accessibility model. And the third one is often known as the attitude change model. And this... uh, to, to think about the simple version of this, essentially in the attitude change model, the anchor is treated as something that changes your attitude toward the nature of the question. In other words, the anchor is treated as a kind of hint. 
Hmm. Now, a lot of people might have reacted to the stuff I said at the beginning of the episode that way. Like, oh, if you said – um, you know, did Marie Curie live till after 27? She probably lived more than that, but I bet that is like a cue or a hint right. that she died young. Does that make sense? No, I think that makes perfect sense. I think that is, that is the way I tend to think about trivia questions. If one's pulling out some trivia cards, just, uh, you know, with friends or family. Like one example, there's a, a wonderful little card game called Are You Smarter Than a Box of Rocks? Uh huh. And, it's it, each trivia question. The the answer is going to be zero, one, or two, and then you shake a box of rocks, and the answers will will be based on the the random way that the the rocks uh, fall together, a zero, one, or a two. So the you're playing against a box of rocks, uh-huh. but you go into every question knowing that the answer is going to be low. It cannot be greater than two. Right. So in that case, you are being primed with an anchor each time you play with something that is informationally relevant. Like it actually is – that that is useful information that's going to bias your answer toward correct answers. Right. But in the case of anchoring, there is plenty of evidence that you can bias people's answers towards un- incorrect answers, obviously incorrect answers, answers they would never give unless they'd been given this anchor before making the judgment. You know, another area I think we, where one run in, runs into this a lot uh, is the area of star ratings for things. Uh-huh. You know, if you see a, a five-star rating for a particular service, a podcast, movie, book, <laughs> you, game, you name it, uh, that is going to serve as, a, as an anchoring point for your evaluation of the product. Or a one-star, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that there there clearly is, for example, a critical herding effect uh, about if you look at the way critics' opinions pour in for movies and video games and things like that, especially any system. Maybe less so for things like books where there's not as much of an organized numerical rating system that people mm-hmm. use. Uh, but yeah, for like movies, the Rotten Tomatoes score or whatever, I, I – do really get the feeling that once you've seen that lots of other critics like something, you're more likely to give it a fair shake. Yeah. Like you might just pay more attention when you're watching it and think, oh, okay, this is something interesting going on here. You might have watched the same movie otherwise and just kind of been checking your phone and was like, oh, it was okay. Yeah. It, it kind of opens your mind to the possibility for wonder. Um, in something which it, in something that is as low stakes as film for most of us, you know, unless you're a professional uh, in in the uh, in the industry, for the most part, like that's a good thing. Why I'm all for finding the wonder in a terrible film, mm-hmm. uh, but when you apply that to other areas, to find the wonder in a terrible automobile, to find the wonder <laughs> in a terrible uh, political candidate, like that, the 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 stakes are higher. I'm a I'm a real devotee of cult B cars. <laughs> we need like a mystery science theater of household appliances. <laughs> yeah, the, the silhouettes are all missing fingers in that uh, in that example. Okay, I guess we should move on to uh, – and we're still working mainly from that 2011 paper I mentioned earlier uh, – to mention a few of the factors that have been found to affect or influence the anchoring effect, one of which is mood. Uh, I thought this was kind of interesting because it actually runs counter to some of the ways that mood affects other types of judgment. Here's how it goes. Being sad has been found to generally make you more susceptible to anchoring. Huh. This is odd because the general understanding is that people reason better when they're in a sad mood than when they're in a happy mood. Yeah, it's kind of the idea you want your shoppers happy, right? Like a happy shopper is going to enter and leave with a smile on their face. But this makes it sound like the opposite, that you want sad shoppers. Yeah, despite the fact that information is generally processed more efficiently when judges are in a sad mood, uh, this it's the opposite for the anchoring effect. To quote from the, the paper I mentioned, the 2011 paper, quote, However, an exception to this rule is judgmental anchoring. Bodenhausen and Englick and Soder found that uh, participants in a sad mood were more susceptible to the heuristic bias of anchoring in comparison to their counterparts in a neutral or happy mood. From the attitude change perspective, sad mood causes people to engage in more effortful processing where people interpret information through elaboration on their existing knowledge and determine the claim to be acceptable or unacceptable. So maybe the idea here is that 
people in a sad mood are more likely to spend more time reading into the question on anchoring, doing that attitude change thing, looking for a hint in the mm. question, and this hint can bias them way off the mark. Okay. Well, how, what about um, knowledge of the participants? This comes back to the um, uh, to your initial question. Like I, I had read this book or I had researched this topic before, so I felt like I had a leg up on the question. Yeah. You, if you'd just been reading about Marie Curie's life, mm-hmm. you probably knew the right answer and that anchor wasn't going to throw you, right? So there are some cases where obviously knowledge can play a difference, but in general, knowledge of a subject area has not been shown to be a strong way of undercutting the anchoring effect. Even if you're knowledgeable in a subject area, you're still susceptible to anchoring. Uh, Examples that have been tested here are that, for example, car mechanics and car dealers were influenced by anchors on car prices. Estate agents adjusted their estate value estimates toward anchors. Even if you know what you're talking about, anchors will probably still affect you. Huh. Well, I mean, on one level, this makes sense because there's the, we, of course, have the adage, uh, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and certainly one can be knowledgeable in a field or, or, or whatnot without being an expert in that area. There are going to be holes in your knowledge. There's going to be room for doubt. Right. And uh, and and. That And where there's doubt, there, it seems like there's a susceptibility to anchoring. I'm sure that's not always the case, but I think sometimes you've got some sort of analog of the Dunning-Kruger effect going on where people who have more knowledge are going to be a little more cautious. People who have less knowledge are just kind of like, yeah, whatever, I'll give this answer. Well, then there's more room for ego to get involved too. Like yeah. take the, the Highlander 2 question. Uh, as I said – trivia about the the budget of a film or the gross of a film like that's not an interest area for me and i'm not i'm not really hesitant to be way off the mark on it yeah but if it were a question about uh, uh like a particular actor in the film like who played the the villain uh in highlander 2 uh-huh. which was, was of course michael ironside but if if that name wasn't instantly coming to my head i would be less uh less brave about just blurting something out you know because This is something I should know, so I'm going to be more cautious. Right. Well, the idea of ego does introduce something about motivation, right? Mm -hmm. You you can have differential motivations in how you should try to answer questions. Maybe the problem is – um, people just don't care enough to really try to answer, answer these questions right. So what happens if you give people incentives to get the answer right? The answer is not much. Incentives uh, and payoffs for accuracy have not been shown to correct the anchoring effect. People are still affected by anchors. And, of course, this comes back to the idea that it is an implicit process. Yeah, exactly. Here's one that should be a, should be a total deal breaker. Here's how you defeat the anchoring effect, right? Forewarning people. You say, uh, there's this thing called the anchoring effect. Right. And we're going to give you a number. And that number is probably going to contaminate uh, the way in which you answer the question. So that number is going to bias your answer toward that number. Be aware of the anchoring effect. Unfortunately, studies have shown this doesn't work. Even when you explain the anchoring effect to people and warn them that it may be biasing their thinking – they are still vulnerable to it. Ooh, I want to try one out. This is just off, off, uh, just shooting from the hip here. How many dwarves are in the Disney movie Snow White and the Seven Dwarves? More <laughs> or less than thirty-eight? <laughs> like just running it through my mind, I feel the contamination of that question. Even uh-huh. though the the answer is obvious, e- yeah. even though I there should be no rational reason to gravitate towards thirty-eight. It, it begins to introduce like weeds of, uh, of doubt. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, in the same way that I don't know if you've ever had this experience of like reading a, uh, an obvious like fake news article on yeah. the internet. Like somebody posts something. It's like from a conspiracy theory website or, you know, one of those fake news websites or something that's just obviously made up and is not from a reputable news source. Even though you know this is obviously untrue, you can kind of feel it sort of like, yeah, creeping in. It's like you, you don't have, you don't, you honestly put any credence in it being true, but just the fact that the words appear on the screen has some kind of like magical conjuring effect on your mind that makes you sort of start like entertaining doubts about reality. Yeah, yeah, no, I've, I've, 
felt the same thing. I, and you see that too with uh, just straight up tabloid coverage and yeah. uh, slanderous statements. Like the mere fact that it is pumped into a headline gives it a certain life that it shouldn't have. Okay, but what about on the individual level? Are, are, are some of us just going to be more susceptible than others? Uh, it does appear, by, based on some preliminary research, that that is the case. Uh, but this is, this is not as solid as some of the other research. But preliminary research says that participants with high conscientiousness, and that generally means things like self-control and self-discipline, mm-hmm. And high agreeableness, that's how long you, how uh, well you get along with others. And low extroversion, meaning people who are introverted. Mm-hmm. Those three things also coupled with high openness to experience, which these are all uh, getting into the big five personality traits. Right. These things are more susceptible to the anchoring effect. But like I said, uh, the study cautions that these are these are not super solid results. This is just sort of like something that appears to possibly be true. Now, the question would be why those traits? Why would those things lend uh, lend susceptibility to the anchoring effect? To quote from the 2011 study, quote, Individuals with high conscientiousness engage in more thorough thought processes before judgments are made. Those with high agreeableness take the provided anchors seriously. And high openness to experience influences uh, individuals who are more sensitive to anchor cues. Also, they say that low extroversion is possibly explained through a correlation with sad mood, which apparently increases susceptibility to the anchoring effect, as we explained earlier. Huh. Now, now the the openness, uh, the high openness to experience that that rings true to, to, for me as well. Yeah. And I feel like I've seen that represented in other studies, looking at uh, you know individuals with liberal or conservative uh, viewpoints. Uh-huh. Uh, someone might ask, "Oh, are, are you open to new experiences? I see you're into uh, uh, you know extreme sports and uh, and, and other new novel uh, things in your life." Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. Well, are you open to the idea that Voldemort would make a great president and Harry <laughs> Potter was a terrorist? And maybe you are. You know, you're open to alternative viewpoints, alternative worldviews, right? Mm-hmm. And that kind of uh, that kind of mind can be a dangerous thing because if you have a closed off mind, it, it kind of runs both both ways. Well, right? good information is not getting in, but also maybe bad information exactly, is less yeah. likely to get in. So, so like I say, that that uh, that aspect of the argument definitely, I think, rings true for me. Okay, here's another one. What about analytical intelligence? Will people with just greater cognitive abilities be better at avoiding the effects of anchoring? Uh, this is one where research is divided on the topic. At least to the time this meta-review was undertaken, there were conflicting results. Essentially, some studies seem to find that those with greater cognitive abilities were more resistant to anchoring, and another study found, nope, not the case. Okay. Well, I mean, we've seen plenty of studies before that show that very intelligent people can be deceived and can be self-deceiving. So it would make sense that uh, you're... Uh, you know, cognitive level would only have so much influence on your susceptibility to anchoring. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things we talked about in our science communication breakdown episode is that uh, being a smart person does not necessarily pr- protect you against radicalizing yourself with untrue beliefs on a partisan basis. Uh, Maria Konnikova has an entire book uh, dealing with with con artists. Uh, Uh, And one of her key points is that very intelligent people can be duped by things like this. Yeah, smart people are vulnerable to con artists. She's got a great story in that. It's not a great story. It's a sad story, but it's a about like, what is it, a nuclear physicist who gets taken in on this bizarre drug running scheme? Yes, I believe so. I'd have to revisit to make sure I got mm-hmm. the details right. But th- that's a good book. Book. It's worth reading, by the way. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we'll give you a little advice on how to avoid the anchoring effect. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. 
it's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with h track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. So the question you're obviously wondering about is you we've gone through all these reasons that the anchoring effect appears incredibly robust, mm -hmm. despite the fact that people want to be able to avoid it and not have it influence their thinking. It just seems to work every time. Uh, so how do you get around it? Well, this comes up in uh, in the 2011 paper we've been discussing and the the results are not great. There, there is not a whole lot of hope to be offered. Um, one of the, one of the strategies that has been put out there as something that might work is what's known as the consider the opposite strategy. Okay. Now, this is effective at some types of debiasing. Debiasing is the process of, you know, trying to remove your personal bias. And so consider the opposite strategies are actually, it seems pretty simple, but it's worth learning how to do. When you think something is true, just sit there and come up with a list of reasons it might not be true. 
I think this is reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, a, a sort of a science fiction, uh, example would be Star Wars. Uh, looking at the uh, the the empire is the empire good or is the empire bad you you're told <laughs> that they're bad but sometimes it's helpful to to entertain the opposite uh, uh viewpoint maybe the empire was good i don't know what the arguments for that would be but okay I, I don't know if it holds up anymore but i feel like there was a, a time when when the, the argument was more uh, convincing or at least uh, I, I couldn't see that the Empire is good, but I could see that the Rebellion is also evil. Yes. You and could I feel, say that the Empire and the Rebellion are both evil. Yeah. I feel like they're leaning into that more with the recent films, right? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. But at any rate, it comes back to a, a popular uh, bit of advice that Timothy Leary gave everyone, right? Yes. Uh, though a lot of people say that, and I think a lot of times they just think that means like – don't believe what the man tells right. you. That is a part of it. But another mm-hmm. very important part of thinking for yourself is questioning your internal authority. Right. Uh, questioning what seems reasonable to you at this moment. And the, a good way to do that apparently is to try this consider the opposite strategy. Just honestly do your best to come up with a list of reasons why what you're thinking is probably wrong. And then you consider that list and you think about, are these reasons reasonable? And so this this has been shown to be effective at some things, some types of debiasing, but apparently it is not shown to be very effective with anchoring. Well, that's not good at all. Nope. Uh, another thing, I want to read a quote from the uh, the 2011 paper, quote, In their popular book on behavioral economics, Belsky and Golovich in 1999 warn people that they may be prone to confirmation biases and anchoring if they make spending and investment decisions without research. They are especially loyal to certain brands or investments for the wrong reasons. They find it hard to see investments for less than they paid for them, and they rely on the seller's price rather than assessing the value themselves. They advise people to avoid the pitfall of anchoring by broadening their board of advisors, so listening to more people, okay. doing more thorough research before making economic decisions, so not just relying on one anchor you're seeing in the store, but trying to get as much information in front of you as possible, looking at trends, being realistic and taking the longer view, and showing a little more humility when it comes to one's own judgment. Now, all of this seems like good advice to me, but I don't know if this actually proves effective at overcoming the anchoring bias. Right, because in, in all of these cases, if you just had this, this checklist in your pocket, mm-hmm. you, would still being, you would still be employing it explicitly, trying to counter something that is occurring implicitly. Yeah. Now, there are a few other ideas I was just thinking about that, that these are not – tested, but I was trying to think, well, what could you do given how robust the uh, anchoring effect is? Here's one. Whenever possible, what can you do to avoid the anchor? Like in situations where you're going to have to make a judgment and you know that you may be exposed to an anchor that works against you, just try to protect yourself from being exposed to it. Do whatever you can to avoid actually encountering that anchor. Huh. Then this sounds like a, a potential role for a an internet browser filter, like an anchor filter, uh-huh. where it it'll take out any uh, any leading numbers and uh, whatever you might be reading. Yeah, but then again, it's hard to know how to do that, right? Like mm-hmm. you don't want to cut yourself off from incoming information that may actually be useful to you. It's true, and you don't want to just remove all numbers from your newsfeed. That sounds a bit extreme. Yeah. Uh, here's another one that is much more. Much more directly related to price negotiations. Okay. Uh, be preemptive. Set your own anchor before your negotiating opponent has a chance to set an anchor for you. So if you want to pay a lower price on something, apparently a good way to do that is you be the first person to say something and set your really, really, really low estimate. It, or high estimate if you're looking right, to if get you're, paid. If, yeah. if you're trying to get paid. Yeah, exactly. This sounds, this sounds like, uh, the art of the deal right here, Jeff. <laughs> I don't think exactly is the art of the deal. Um, but yeah, you, you can use anchoring to your advantage. Most of the time people are going to be trying to use it against you, but there are cases where, where normal people who are not in advertising or sales or whatever can try to use this. For example, 
studies have actually been conducted and found that when you uh, – if you're trying to get a higher salary at work, you're trying mm-hmm. to negotiate your pay up, uh, salary negotiations that open with a very high request are more likely to end up with a higher salary offer in the end, even if the opening anchor you request is way too high. Okay. So go into every negotiation saying – $30 million. Just yeah. go for the, the Sean Connery money right off the bat. I don't know if $30 million. I mean, maybe it will. I don't know. Yeah. Then again, I mean, I feel like if you're negotiating with a uh, with a business person, they've probably been trained to some extent about some version of the anchoring effect. So. Yeah, that's right. But then again, as we've discussed earlier, it knowing, about it, yeah. Yeah, knowing about it doesn't make it not work on you. Hey, if you want to check out more Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, blog posts, and links out to our various social media accounts. Big thanks, as always, to our audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 